Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, a show about cybersecurity and the people that defend the internet. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I'll be your host. This weekly show is put together as a series of segments. Depending on the episode, we'll be looking at the last couple weeks in cybersecurity news, talking to different people in the industry about their thoughts and experiences. We're going to break apart some of the TTPs used by adversaries, and we will even cover a little bit of hacker history, which is what we're going to do today. In this episode, we're going to be recounting the story of Clifford Stoll, who made a pretty big discovery in 1986 while working as a sysadmin for the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. It is a story that involves a suspected murder, international espionage, and the type of relentless curiosity that makes a great defender. Without further ado, I give you The Astronomer Who Caught International Cyber Spies. On May 23, 1989, in the city of Hanover, Germany, a 23-year-old programmer named Karl Koch left work to go to lunch. When he didn't return by late afternoon, his supervisor filed a missing persons report. On June 1st, police were tipped off to an abandoned vehicle in the forest a couple dozen miles northeast. There, the story goes, lay Karl's body, or more accurately, his ashes. An empty, half-melted gas canister was left nearby, and according to the police report, there were no signs of foul play from an outside source. Apparently, he had self-emoliated. No suicide note was found, however, and there were some other strange features of the site. No shoes were found. The car, keys still in the ignition, was covered in dust, as if it had been there for years. And consider this. If Carl had really lit himself on fire, you'd expect the fire would have spread some distance. It was in the woods, after all, and there was gasoline involved, and it hadn't rained that week. But according to legend, the patch of scorched earth around his body was an almost impossibly small and controlled circle, as if somebody was there at the time to put it out. Carl's co-conspirators weren't the only ones spooked by it. 5,500 miles west in Northern California, the 39-year-old astronomer Clifford Stoll wondered whether he was on the same list. I'm worried as hell about it, and so is my mom he told People Magazine. She's afraid someone will go after me. At 620 Colby Street, hidden behind some trees in a lazy suburb halfway between Berkeley and downtown Oakland, sits a two-story yellowish-beige house with green accents and a black shingle roof. Were you to walk by, or even step inside, nothing in particular would seem unique about this house. But then... Carved into one wall of the garage, there's the hatch door that leads to the crawl space. This isn't some John Wayne Gacy scenario. Actually, in, in a way, it's weirder. Just behind the hatch is a robot, no more than shin high, a messy concoction of wiring and spare metal parts. It sits on a small three wheeled platform, almost like some 1960s prototype of a Roomba, but with a camera built in that feeds to a monitor. On its face is a miniature forklift powered by an old Pontiac window tilt mechanism rescued from a junkyard. Every so often, Clifford Stoll opens a hatch door in his garage, takes remote control of his little contraption, and navigates it through a maze of hundreds of labeled cardboard boxes stored in the crawl space underneath his property, each one containing a Klein bottle, a unique topological structure which looks like a beaker but has only one face, like a Mobius strip. There's hardly any use for such a thing in our three-dimensional universe, but Clifford Stoll is passionate about non-orientable manifolds. 
He's built a business around selling these useless bottles to the world's topology nerds. His website, hardly more than an HTML file with some links, reads less like a landing page than a 90s style blog. These elegant bottles make splendid gifts, outstanding classroom displays, and inferior mousetraps. With its circle of singularities, an Acme Klein bottle can be said to exist inside of itself, especially handy during time reversals. Later down the page, Stoll gives his personal address and phone number and invites prospective customers to come to his house for a coffee and a chat. Our story today is dramatic enough in its own right, replete with sophisticated hacking and a months-long hunt for covert international spies. But without knowing the protagonist, you couldn't really grasp just how strange it all is. Few people are less suited to becoming an action movie hero than this guy. I'm the last person in the world to be involved with spies. Me? A lefty from Berkeley? Chasing a spy and getting caught up with spooks from the CIA? I just don't see myself that way. Cliff used to study astronomy, but at the age of 35, his research grant had run out. So he took out a position maintaining the dozen or so mainframe computers at the nearby Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, a research institution for the U.S. Department of Energy. His first assignment could have seemed more menial. Because it was the mid-80s, and there were so few computers to go around, hundreds of scientists and academics in Berkeley used the lab's computers, paying good money for the privilege. This particular month, though, there was the tiniest of problems. Of the $2,387 the lab billed to its computer users, 75 cents were left unaccounted for. Somebody owed the lab a few quarters. But who? It goes without saying, but the problem wasn't the money. It was deeper than that. Say you open the calculator app on your phone right now and type in 2 plus 2. If the app returns any result other than 4, it'll be a surprise. Computers don't struggle with arithmetic, and they don't make rounding errors. If the result of 2 plus 2 comes to, I don't know, $1,764,787, you can deduce that there's probably some obvious bug in the app. The error at Lawrence Berkeley was even stranger than that. It was as if their machines added 2 and 2 and returned $4.01. It was an interesting problem, Cliff recalled in a PBS documentary. A big error would mean an obvious bug in the system. Easy to find, easy to fix. But 75 cents? That's a challenge! After writing and running some test programs, he was sure that nothing was wrong with the accounting system. But around 7pm one night, lo and behold, right in the user log, somebody named Hunter. No account number, no billing address, 9 seconds of computer time to his name. Stoll booted Hunter from the system, problem solved. That is, until the next day, when the lab received an email. On a Friday in Berkeley, as 5pm turned to 5.30, then 6, Cliff Stoll, the IT guy, waited around for all his friends and colleagues to leave the facility. When they were gone, office by office, he, in his words, liberated them of their printers. He hauled each one into the server room in the basement of the building, hooking them into the lines running underground. There, in the company of 50 printers, constantly running, printing every bit of data from every user in the network, Cliff set up a sleeping bag and stayed the night, waking up every half hour or so to perform maintenance and reload paper. Still in my sleeping bag, I must have smelled like a goat. 
Bleary-eyed, I dragged each printer back to its rightful owner. The first 49 showed nothing interesting. From the 50th trailed 80 feet of printout. During the night, someone had sneaked in through a hole in the operating system. The hacker must have had thorough knowledge of the Lawrence Berkeley computer network to have devised such a scheme so clever as they had. Within this mid-80s proto-internet, users could communicate via a text editor called GNU Emacs, which had its own mail system. All you had to do was rename the text file you wanted to transfer, making your intended recipient its owner. Part of the program ran with system manager privileges, and even the researchers at Lawrence Berkeley didn't realize that, by virtue of an oversight in its code, a hacker could use that access to send whatever files they wished directly to the mail system. In simpler terms, it was as if the hacker had sent somebody an email, but that somebody was the Lawrence Berkeley network itself. And rather than an email, it was malicious code instructing the network to make them a super user. So this person, completely unauthorized, and possibly thousands of miles away, now had the same level of control over Berkeley's computers as Cliff himself, its actual administrator. Most worrying, they had a view into all the accounts on the network, including the file containing users' encrypted passwords. They downloaded it. Within a week, Stoll later wrote in a paper, he reconnected to the same computers, logging into new accounts with correct passwords. Generally, reversing encrypted hashes is incredibly difficult, if not mathematically impossible. But computer hacking wasn't so common in those days, so America's top researchers weren't used to what we now know as cyber hygiene. And so, Stoll explained, the passwords he guessed were English words, common names, or place names. We realized that he was decrypting password files on his local computer by successively encrypting dictionary words and comparing the results to the password file entries. Whether these accounts belonged to anyone of note, whether they housed any sensitive data, was almost beside the point. They were dummies, host bodies this adversary could inhabit at any time for use in his downstream attacks. Using Lawrence Berkeley as a launch point, the hacker launched his way into far-off networks at other universities and locations far worse, far more sinister. One evening, while at home, Cliff Stoll's pocket pager beckoned. He knew what that meant. At the queue, he got up and rushed over to the laboratory. No longer with 50 printers at his disposal, he arranged a backup tracking system, as he described. A computer loosely coupled into our LAN periodically looked at every process. Since we knew from the printouts which accounts had been compromised, we only had to watch for the use of these stolen accounts. We chose to place alarms on the incoming lines, where serial line analyzers and personal computers watched all traffic for the use of stolen account names. To avoid sleeping at the lab every night, he wrote a program to ping his pager any time the hacker logged in. Not only that, it beeped in Morse code, revealing the hacker's dummy account username, the telephone line he came in on, and the computer he was targeting. That's how Cliff discovered that this hacker was not only online, but using Lawrence Lab as a mere stepping stone for what must have been the real crown jewels. Milnet, a computer network belonging to the Department of Defense. The hacker leapfrogged from network to network. The Army Comptroller in Fort Harrison, the Navy in Florida, the Optimus database in the Pentagon, hundreds of computers in all. His methods, each time he came upon a new U.S. military target, were almost embarrassingly simple, attempting to log in with default or otherwise obvious account names like root or guest 
and guessing common passwords. However, Cliff noted, It was dismayingly successful. In about 5% of the machines attempted, default account names and passwords permitted access, sometimes giving system manager privileges as well. Once inside, the hacker searched file systems for specific keywords like nuclear and SDI, short for Strategic Defense Initiative, America's proposed missile defense system. After unsuccessfully soliciting help from law enforcement, Cliff could only watch for weeks and months as the hacker danced around U.S. military networks like playgrounds, connecting through a web of leveraged networks and accounts for short enough periods of time that nobody could possibly trace a line back to him. What can we do without the government's help? Cliff asked his girlfriend Martha one day while they were together in the shower. As he tells it in his book, she then turned to him with a sly look. She had a plan. Operation Showerhead. Well, you see, she said in a put-on Soviet accent, the spy from Hanover seeks secret information. Yes, we give him just what he wants. Secret military spy secrets. Lots of them. Oodles of secrets. Tell me, Natasha, darling, he replied. Where shall we get them from? We don't know any military secrets. We make them up, Boris. If the hacker connected to Cliff's own computer, he was fair game. If Cliff could keep him in there for a long time, hours probably, it might be just enough to trace the origin of the connection. Rinsing Martha's hair, he calculated that over a 1200 baud line, the hacker could download about 120 characters a second. If they were to keep him for two hours, that meant about 50,000 words, enough to fill a novel. At the dinner table, Cliff, Martha, and Martha's roommate devised a honeypot, a treasure trove of sensitive defense documents that would seem so juicy that the hackers simply couldn't pass it up. Nuclear stuff. SDI stuff. Fake, of course, but it had to seem real. Real enough to keep them on the line for at least a couple of hours, while dozens of technicians and operators from telephone suppliers across the United States and Europe coordinated the enemy's every movement. Cliff was camped out in the laboratory basement when at 2.30 in the afternoon, just days before his manager promised to shut down his entire investigation, a user logged in. I didn't doubt it was the hacker, Stoll wrote. This was it, his last chance. The trap was set, the plan in motion. The user checked who was on the computer and found no one. As always, they proceeded with their GNU Emacs exploitation to become super user. But Cliff wasn't even watching. He was already calling the local phone company. The line is live, all right, his point person replied. And it's coming from AT&T. They called New Jersey, where all the AT&T long-distance lines were routed. Cliff heard another voice join the call. I'll call McLean next. Soon, half a dozen people were on the line. California, New Jersey, Virginia. Greetings from San Francisco Bay, said another voice. The technicians dotted around the United States eventually made way to Europe and Hanover, Germany, to the Bundespost telephone exchange. There, an operator at the switching office would have to go and manually check on every individual telephone switch, terminating each one, one by one, in order to see who, in particular, was connecting to San Francisco at that moment. Everyone waited. An office technician in Hanover came into the line. I'm popping the fuse. Now.
Computer hacking is something that anybody can pick up as long as you've got some brains, and the time and dedication to learn it. Clifford Stoll, for example, isn't even necessarily a computer guy, at least in the conventional sense. He's a mathematician, a glass bottle salesman, a scientist. What drew him to computing was the science of it. His boss told him to solve a 75 cent accounting error, and so, he said, I had to rely on what I knew best, doing science. In science, you gather and analyze data and do experiments, so that's what I did. A lot of the time, people play with computers for the mystery of it, the game. Cliff met one of those people, Volker Yula, when he visited a pub on Schofield Street in Hanover, years after the climax of his story. They only wanted to hack for freedom of information and showing holes in computers, Volker said of he and his friends. Then we all realized that this had happened. No one could believe it. For years, young Germans had been gathering at the Kaiser to relax and talk about computers, including hackers like Volker and Marcus Hess, the man behind the Department of Defense intrusion. Volker knew Marcus well, as well as some of Marcus's co-conspirators, like Karl Koch. These were people who seemed, like him, to revel in the game of learning systems and cracking codes. But international espionage? No one could believe it. Marcus Hess was only 28 years old when he, Carl, and a couple of associates struck a deal with the Soviet KGB to hack the U.S. government computer systems for state secrets. They only managed to earn about $54,000 for the job by the time Cliff caught up to them. So why do it? In the beginning, he told one reporter, I hadn't thought about anything. I was just sitting there and hacking. According to Hess's account, it was Carl who started the whole thing. Carl was only 23 the year their plan got busted, the year he died. Not long ago, Volker recalled, He was much more friendly, and he was an open-hearted person. Then it went down with him. I think he took drugs more and more, and you could see he was sitting at the table in this Tuesday evening group, and he only listened. His eyes stared far away, and he wasn't... he, he was absent. The circumstances of Carl's death have never been resolved. Was it suicide? His death occurred shortly after being charged with espionage, but even Marcus got off with a suspended sentence of less than two years. Could it have been an unrelated drug feud? Or possibly the KGB? Even Cliff, the math guy in California doing his big science experiment, couldn't help but feel guilty. As he later wrote, The tragic death of Carl Koch has deeply shocked me. I didn't want to kill anybody. And that brings us to the end of our second episode and first installment of Hacker History. I hope you enjoyed the story. I had a lot of fun making it. And if by chance Clifford Stoll ever happens to listen to this, I just want to apologize for the voice acting. It's a new medium for me and I'm still figuring it out. I would also like to take this opportunity to plug Lima Charlie, who is sponsoring the production of this podcast. Lima Charlie is taking a fundamentally different approach to cybersecurity. They are providing core components or security primitives in a developer-friendly way that gives users the ability to easily create custom security stacks that solve the problems unique to their organization. It's an approach that is very similar to the way that Amazon Web Services delivers components of IT infrastructure. Self-serve, no contracts, infrastructure as code, scale up, scale down, API first, open documentation, and everything is designed to work together seamlessly. 
easily leverage a powerful EDR, log ingestion, Yara scanning, threat feeds, atomic red team, Velociraptor. The list just goes on and on and is growing all of the time. You can learn more about the product and find the resources you need to get started at limacharlie.io. If you have any questions or suggestions related to the podcast, you can send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io or you can find us on Twitter at defenders underscore pod. This episode of Hacker History was written by the talented Nathaniel Nelson and then narrated and produced by Christopher Luft. Thanks for listening.